we go. Ready for takeoff, everyone? To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to him. Sorry about that. Thanks, sir. Father, I pray for us as we look at your word this morning um, that you just help us to be attentive to what you're saying these days by your spirit. Lord, this was a letter written by you, Jesus, to a, a city, to a church in a city, a specific place. But Lord, you wanted it included in the kind of glorious book of the Bible because it speaks to us in the days that we're in and it speaks to your church. So I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, uh, letter three to the third church in the series. These, remember, these are the letters of Jesus. Uh, these are the different churches that they've been written to, seven of them. Uh, helpfully there, if you're taking notes, return, remember, refuse, resist, revive, receive, repent. And um, we're going to look at those over the next few weeks. But this week we're on number three, refuse. Refuse to compromise. So here's, here's the letter to the church of Pergamum. Pergamum is a real place. It was a city. We'll look at that in a minute. Uh, it was an amazing city. And much like many of the other sort of um, places around that were written to by Jesus through John, kind of prophetic letters to these churches, this was an, an amazing city with some amazing um, architecture that you can still go and see. Um, I told you the first uh, church that we spoke in Ephesus, Myself and my family had the real privilege of going to Ephesus um, last year and just seeing these buildings and being in the place where Paul preached of where that early church was planted and seeing the crosses scratched into the kind of temples where all this uh, idolatry was um, kind of makes it so alive in a fresh way. So um, I've got a couple of pictures to show you a bit later on. And like many of these letters, the first thing Jesus writes is to commend the church. And we're going to look at that in a moment but then also to challenge the church, to say, look, you're doing these things really well, but, and 
And um, it's really funny, when, when, when you read that first bit, and when I always used to read it, um, it, 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 Jesus sounds quite stern. When you hear those words, I know where you live, it kind of sounds like, oh. But actually, it's not, Jesus isn't saying it in that way in this part here. It's not a kind of, I'm looking at you, big brother, I know where you, Jesus is actually going, I, I know where you live. I know the terrible place in which you live and the enormous challenges you face. I know. I'm not distant from that. I'm not removed from your pain and your challenges and your struggles. Seriously, my heart yearns for you because I know the difficult place where you, you live. And he's saying, and my heart burns for you because you didn't renounce your faith despite all the challenges around you, despite the difficulties that are coming against you, despite the enormous demonic forces that are kind of coming against you because of the city in which you live, you haven't renounced my name. He's saying, I know where you live. And I think Jesus is saying that to the church today. You know, I've talked about this before, but I, I do find it really hard reading the newspaper or looking at the media on television. It's exhausting. And, and, and actually often feels very hopeless. And if you read commentaries or if you spend any time on Twitter, I'd increasingly encourage you to not do that because it is such a toxic pool these days. And, and, and when you do get moments of light, you know, and Christians put their head above the parapet to say, I mean, uh, th let me just say this. There are a lot of Christians who put really unhelpful things on Twitter. And I understand why they do it. But sometimes there's a lack of wisdom in it. The question I always ask myself is, would Jesus tweet that? <laughs> and I'm quite often convicted with a sense of, no, I don't think he would. There are some things he would tweet which probably aren't being tweeted, but that's different. But, you know, it's about how we say things and why we say things. It's often the why. But sometimes when you read a really good tweet that Christians have put up, and there are some brilliant people on Twitter, people like Pete Gregg. There are other great Christians who, who put really uplifting stories, really encouraging stories, stories of transformation, stories of hope, stories that haven't got an edge to them. They're not kind of trying to poke the bear for the sake of poking the bear. They're, they're, they're testifying to the goodness and glory of God. But what's really hard is when you see that, then you, hit, you see a, a flurry of response from humanists, from secularists, from anti-Christians who just absolutely go after Christians. Because the pool that we live in is increasingly toxic and the world that we live in is increasingly cynical and hard and judgmental and critical and angry, particularly if you're a Christian. Don't you know we're supposed to live in a tolerant, liberal world? Which is fine unless you're a Christian and then you don't get liberalism or tolerance or you get judgment. Why is that? Well, because I would suggest we're in a spiritual battle. <laughs> Shouldn't surprise us but that is often the world we're in. And Jesus understands that. He understands that the world that we live in right now is not easy. He's not removed from it and going, come on, church, pull yourself together. He looks at his church, he looks at the world, and he weeps because he sees its brokenness and its darkness. But he wants us as church to have hope in the midst of that and to be resilient and to be holy. And that's the challenge facing the church in the days that we live in. So this first part of the letter, Jesus is really commending the people there, saying, look, I, I know where you're living right now is tough. It's dark. It's oppressive. And, and, and 
you're going to be persecuted, and some of you are being persecuted. So what's Jesus saying to the church in Pergamon? Well, if you, we're going to put these online. I don't think they're, they're fully up yet, but the, if you, when they are, go back and listen to my first talk about Ephesus and the church there. The church in Ephesus, if the church in Ephesus was guilty of elevating truth above love, because if you remember, they got very much into doing good deeds, and they were very earnest, and they were very... Um, faithful and they were very good at doing good deeds and taking a stand but actually they were doing it out of duty rather than love they were doing it out of tradition rather than a passion for Jesus remember the church in Ephesus they had forgotten their first love and Jesus was saying return to your first love remember why you were doing these things it's because of a love for Jesus so if the church in Ephesus was, was guilty of elevating truth doing the right thing above love then the church at Pergamum has elevated love above truth. And we'll see that as we read it. So they have this, you know, there seems to be within the church in Pergamon a commitment to love and tolerance and kind of embrace and welcoming, which are good principles, but that became, a, that was more important to them than holding the line of truth. And so the church there was beginning to, risk of degenerating into a weak sentimentality and inclusivity that threatened their kind of radical purity and the theology of the church it's a challenge to the church in the west isn't it that in our desire to be all things to all people and welcoming and embrace it that we we've become so sort of potentially diluted as to what we really believe that actually we're kind of like difference what difference from the world that's the risk for the church on things that we're supposed to take a stand on, well, we get a bit woolly and a bit kind of uncertain. And so people can't see really what Christians believe necessarily. And the kind of radical holiness of the church becomes weakened. That's the challenge to the church in Pergamon. Um, John, who wrote Revelation, he prefaces this letter, the beginning of the letter, verse 12. Um, speaking of Jesus, the victorious Messiah, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's why that, that opening bit sounds a bit kind of scary. It's talking about Jesus who has this two-edged sword. Why, why is he talking about Jesus in that way? Well, he's referring to Christ and his words of truth. For Jesus, remember Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. And truth is a really important thing to Jesus. He wants to bring truth. But that means that his truth will challenge anyone that denies truth. Remember Ephesians 6, it talks about the belt of truth. Truth is really important in scripture. The belt of truth needs to be kind of wrapped around ourselves. We as Christians need to be upholders of truth. We need to see it as key. And in Revelation, you know, there is the, you only look at the, 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 the kind of world today, we recognize that there's a battle for truth, isn't there? Look at media. What is truth? And how does the media twist and spin tr truth and politicians and in so many spheres of, of life, there is a battle, there's a war over truth. And we see it in Revelation. A and the battle for truth is often fought through words, isn't it? One person's words, someone else's words. And that perhaps shouldn't surprise us because, of course, Jesus is the word, the word made flesh. And so words are important and truth is important and Jesus has this sharp two-edged sword which is about bringing truth and scripture is, d is, is described as like a, 
a sword that cuts. It's, it's clear. It's clean. It's, it's decisive. Now, we don't face the type of persecution the church in Pergamon did. But I think we are increasingly going to be faced with all sorts of choices and consequences. Things that we say, things that we choose to do, things that we choose not to, things that we believe are right and wrong. The voice and place of the church will, I think, increasingly be judged by the world and there will be consequences. And Paul, if you weren't here last week, Paul spoke very powerfully and challengingly about the church in Smyrna where they're, they're warned that, you know, persecution is coming, Jesus says. Don't be surprised, but stand firm. I am with you, but persecution is coming. And, and you know, and he was saying that, you know, persecution is, persecution is increasingly coming to the church. And if you don't believe that, go and look at an organization like Open Doors. Go and read about the persecution that's happening today in Pakistan, in India, across parts of Asia, in China, in South America, in, in parts of massive parts of Africa. Read about what's happening in churches in Pakistan that are being bombed, where pastors are being killed, where people who go to church are being taken. I mean, awful things. There's more persecution now against Christians than any other time in human history. And it's easy for us in the West to look at that and think, oh, isn't that awful? You know, we need to pray for them. I'm not saying that sort of persecution necessarily will come to us, but persecution, I believe, will come. But what's interesting is when there is persecution, ironically, the church thrives under that intense pressure because the faithful church still finds its voice and, like in Smyrna, finds that God is faithful and God is with those who are broken and those who are choosing to honour Jesus. So in this, in this letter, in this, uh, in this chapter... Did you notice it says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold on to the teachers of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. So suddenly, this letter, it, it kind of, Jesus is speaking about something that happened in the Old Testament. You can read about it back in Numbers 25. Balaam uh, was, was a kind of like a, a false prophet. He was an advisor to the king, to King Balak who wanted to overcome the Israelites, the people of God. And he tried to lure, he tried to trick and trap God's faithful people, the Israelites, um, by, by cursing them, actually. He was told, he, he tried to curse them, to bring down curses on them and to cause calamity to come to the nation. But that didn't work. Kind of God, God protected them and, and the curses didn't work. So he then went to plan B. He was like, oh, that didn't work. Well, that's strange. It's like God protected them. But I've got a cunning plan. And he, has, he, he, he entices the nation to come away from God by enticing them with Moabite women to share pagan sacrificial meals. So he, he got these kind of women to lure them into kind of these foreign religious practices using sex and idolatry to turn the people away from God and lead them down this path. And that's exactly what did happen. So Jesus is saying to the church, remember then, remember how sexuality and kind of like idolatry lured people away from God? It's just the same today, Jesus is saying. In this church, it's just the same today. And you know what he's saying to us? It's just the same today. Sexuality and sex as a thing, as an object, and idolatry, the worship of, 
other things. Well, what's worship today? Well, I'd say sex is worship today. You look at advertising. What sells advertising? Sex. What tells you you need, you know, this new set of clothes or this new type of watch or this, this kind of lifestyle or this holiday or this car? It's sex that sells it. Because we've elevated sex and sexuality into this kind of like mythical godlike status and the world says well without sex then you're not complete without sex then you're not going to be a full person you you need to have as much of it as you want and and that message is the same and it has the power to draw us into all sorts of idolatry and love of all sorts of other things in the same way and Jesus is saying don't be drawn away keep your eyes fixed on me keep your eyes fixed on who I am he talks about the Nicolaitans, um, and I spoke about them when I was speaking about Ephesus. So the Nicolaitans were a sect within the Christian church that was kind of emerging, and um, a heretical sect that believed that the most important thing about the humanity, about people, was our soul. That our bodies didn't really matter that much. And, and what that meant for Nicolaitans was, you know what, the most important thing is that we get our soul to God actually our bodies don't matter so we can kind of do whatever we want with our bodies we can abuse our bodies and we can use our bodies in kind of sin and stuff like that because it doesn't really matter and what Jesus is saying no 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 the body really matters because you know it's, it's a temple for the Holy Spirit and actually the Nicolaitans would have said well you can sin and you don't really need to repent because it's the soul that's important not the body Jesus is saying, no, of course we need to repent. What we do with our bodies, our outward manifestations of reflects what's inwardly. So if we're sinning like it doesn't matter, what are we saying about Jesus? What are we saying about the cross? It's interesting that the, the word Balaam means destroys the people. And, and Nicholas, which is where the word Nicolation comes from, means he conquers the people. It's like Jesus is saying, there's a battle over our bodies. There's a battle over who we are. And Satan wants to destroy the body, the body of Christ, the people of God. He wants to distract us, to divert us, to cause us to drift and lose our way. He wants to conquer the people. He wants to rule on the throne instead of Jesus of our hearts. And when we give ourselves to all sorts of idolatry, and we, it's, it's like I said with Jesus, you know, return to your first love, that first love bit. Jesus is saying it's like the priority, number one. And if we have things above Jesus, our job, our relationships, the acquisition of wealth, stuff, whatever it may be, fame, position, if we put that above Jesus, it doesn't matter if Jesus is still high up the list, it's unless Jesus is first, then we've lost our way. Jesus is saying, no, make me first on the throne of your life. Everything else has to come under me. And if you make Jesus first, everything else begins to make sense. Your identity, who you are, your calling, your gifts, your skills. Make me first, Jesus says. And so Jesus writes this church in Pergamon because some Christians there are beginning to get confused. And, and they think, they, they're, they're thinking, well, I, we can, I can involve myself in some of these cult practices. And I can involve myself kind of which would have meant all the sexual ramifications that came along with that I can involve myself in that world and I can still be a faithful Christian and worship Jesus I can still do that but actually culture is so now important part of where I'm living I just I'm going to slightly just fit into it so that I can be accepted so that I can be part of the social and economic life of the city that I'm in and Jesus is saying no 
No, you need to remain faithful and holy to me. You can give yourselves and, and give yourselves to kind of the, the, the image that's used is these um, idolatrous meals, these pagan festivals and all the food that have been sacrificed to these gods. You can feed yourself on that stuff, but it will always cause you to end up falling short and getting lost. Or, says Jesus, in contrast to that, you can come and feed from the manna from heaven. And there's that, that image, of, remember, in the, in, the, um, in the desert, in the wilderness, where God fed the people with the manna. He says, you can, you can come and feed yourself from me. I'm the living bread. And you can eat this food that I'm giving you that will truly satisfy you in a way that nothing else will. And it speaks of a future banquet to come and a heavenly banquet. Now, Pergamon was a big city. It was about 190,000 people at this time. It's 65 miles north of Smyrna, so where I was speaking at last week. It's not, it's not far away. It's, it's sort of um, a commute, and the, and the business would have been massive, and all the things politically, um, economically, it was really, really important. But it, like the other places, it was a center of worship, I've already spoken for. In fact, for four really important cults. Zeus, there was a massive temple for him. Athene, Dionysius, and Asepreus, which was to do with healing and health, and a bit like Bath, actually. It was a center of healing, and you could come and find yourself healed in the waters. And that, that last one was um, uh, from Greek mythology. Uh, son of, he was the son of Apollo, and he was a, a, a physician, and he was healed. I think he was healed by the venom from a snake, which is why there's a snake around a, a rod that was used. It, it first happened here. A lot of medical um, people use that image. And it was also a center for imperial cults. So it was a dark city. Um, I've got so this, these steps here, this is in the Berlin Museum. These were the steps up to, this is a, a replica of what was there. These were the steps up to um, the, the massive temple to Zeus. And it was high on a hill. And from down, the, the city was split into two parts, higher and lower. And all the Christians would have lived down at the bottom. And they would have looked up at this hill and they would have seen this, and it was like a throne. It, was like, it looked like a throne they were looking up to with Zeus crowned on the top. Imagine, and that's why it's called like the, Sata, the seat of Satan. That's often why they, they said it was like a, that's what it would have looked like. You've got the other picture there, Bill. I think that shows the city. And here's this massive um, kind of amphitheater, is that the right word, up here, and looking down into the city where the Christians would have been. They would have looked up this hill. They would have seen all this pagan worship and living in the midst of it. Jesus is saying, I know where you live. I know the challenge of where you live, but I want you to remain firm. I want you to remain faithful. I mean, Christians in Pergamon must have felt surrounded by evil on all sides. Evil forces in the city and around the valley, pagan gods, symbols of power, people coming to worship there, cultish worship, temple prostitutes everywhere, um, idolatrous meals, food sacrificed. To a bit like Ephesus, in order to negotiate in the, in the marketplace, you'd have been felt forced to compromise, to give incense of worship to these false gods. It would have been really, really difficult. They'd have looked up on the mountain, they would have seen this altar to Zeus, this, this looked like a throne, and then they're trying to worship Jesus, where this seat of Satan. But Jesus says, I know where you are. I want you to stay faithful to me. And, and his commendation of them is really good because like last week in Smyrna where Paul said, you know, Jesus warns them of persecution to come. Well, well here in Pergamon, they've had persecution. 
that if you notice, it's already come upon them. Antipas had refused to acknowledge the divinity of Caesar, and he was killed. Uh, and, and in that city, many Christians were assaulted. There were lots of mobs in the streets against them. And the believers had survived those testing times. They had remained faithful. And God loved that. Jesus was honoring them for that, but saying the danger is there's a kind of subtle thing coming in underneath you, which is about sexual promiscuity and a corruption of the truth and a watering down of the gospel and a kind of slowly seeping away to, from the truth of holiness. And the response, what did they need to do? Well, Jesus says, you need to repent. You need to repent. And that's a word that we often don't feel very, very comfortable with, perhaps. But Jesus is saying, repent. Those of you who've got ears to hear, repent. Turn aside from the idolatry. Turn aside from this syncretism, this kind of mixing of pagan practices and Christian practices. Remain holy. Remain true. Remain set apart. And if you do, there'll be great reward. You'll be fed by me, manna from heaven. And there's this beautiful image of this, this sort of stone. Did you notice that? This white stone that's given to them. It would have been an image. I mean, theologians have different views on it. But it would be an image that, that, that would resonate with many. And often in those days, if you were invited to like a wedding, you would be given um, often a, a, a little white stone that a personal invitation was written on it. And it would be often addressed with your pet name given to you. And it would be just directly to you, and you would take it as an invitation. And so for these new believers, they're given a new white stone. It speaks of them being a new creation. And on it is written a personal message from Jesus for that person. Your true identity, who you really are. Jesus says, I know where you live. And you know what? I know you. I know your name. I created you. I formed you. I love you. I'm proud of you. And here's your invitation. You're invited not just into my family. But soon there's going to be the banquet of the Lamb, the messianic feast in the kingdom. And you're invited. You're part of my family. You're my chosen one, and I love you. It's a gloriously intimate invitation from Jesus to those who remain faithful. I will feed you with everything you need. You're not ever going to be in want. And not only that, there will come a time when you will experience to come a, a personal invitation to come and sit with me at the banquet in heaven. So that's the church in Pergamon. Terrible persecution, terrible challenge in a kind of demonic stronghold. Faithful people who even are, are, are kind of surviving under persecution. But Jesus says you need to hold fast. You need to remain holy. You need to not slowly be worn down by the culture around you so you begin to compromise. So what about for us? Well, I think it's really relevant for Christians who are living in a kind of post-Christian society where the pressure to conform, the pressure to conform to, to, to secular humanism, which is a really big challenge, the pressure to um, conform to, to cultural norms or values around us is sometimes very in our face, but sometimes it's really, really subtle. In everyday life, we're pushed or coerced sometimes, the church... Is, is told to shut up. I mean, I don't know the number of times I've heard politicians speak to church leaders. I mean, like the Archbishop, to be fair to him, over recent years has often stood up in the area, particularly of um, trafficking, and also um, the big one is um, immigration. He did it again recently, you know, talking about refugees coming into the country. And whatever your political opinion and whatever your kind of shade of color, 
you know, that we have to recognize that the Christian doctrine of reaching out to refugees and, and, and finding a place of safety has, has got to be a principle of compassion and mercy. And yes, of course, we could talk about needing to safeguard the rights and wrongs of how we do that. But the Archbishop and many other bishops have spoken saying, well, actually, we, we, we can't just shut the doors and tell people to go away. We need to be a nation of compassion and mercy. And, and when religious leaders often do that, have you noticed, often politicians say, you're the church, you shouldn't be speaking about such thing. <laughs> trying to silence the voice of the church on matters of justice. Try and s- trying to silence the voice of the church on matters of sexuality or human identity. As, and politicians say, you shouldn't be doing that. I don't know what they think we should be doing, but clearly they think we shouldn't be doing that. Whereas I think that's exactly the thing the church needs to be standing up for the vulnerable, the confused, the broken, the lost. We need to be calling out businesses in areas of injustice. We need to be speaking hope to those who are really struggling in areas of identity and, and who they are. We need to be speaking into the kind of the so-called 60s sexual revolution, which has caused such brokenness. And psychologists will, will, will often back that up and say there's such a confusion and a, all sorts. Well, we as church need to not speak judgmentally, and we have to recognize that we have, but we need to speak with authority and with compassion and with truth. Saying, you know what? God loves you. God knows who you are. God formed you and created you in love for purpose. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. He's created you. Maybe you can find out who you are in him because that's what we're supposed to do. As Christians, we need to be bold to speak out in holiness and and, and find our voice again. just as I come into land, just to say this, there's an organization, I was speaking about it before um, the service with Peter and others, there's an organization called Christian Concern, and they um, they send me emails every now and then. And basically, um, I'll read part of what they're about. This is from their website. It says this, we use legal policy and media expertise to seek justice and protect the vulnerable. Our Christian legal center is particularly well known for helping Christians who suffer in the workplace because of their Christian faith but we also want to protect families, unborn children, disabled and elderly people, and those who want to leave Islam, for example. They, they speak about trying to help people to transition from other faiths or no faith into the Christian world. And when they suffer persecution or challenge because of it, they want to be advocates for them. Uh, and I seem to be getting more and more emails from this organization where they highlight the problem for teachers, lecturers, chaplains, nurses, doctors, teachers, all, all sorts of professions where Christians are saying, well, actually, I, I as a Christian, I believe this. And sometimes they put it on Twitter, as I was saying to Peter, sometimes unhelpfully, the way they sometimes say it, but, but they'll often stand up for truth. I'm not sure Twitter is any place to have a conversation because it's just, it's just not a helpful place. It's better to do it face-to-face or in a kind of written formula rather than 120 words or whatever it is. But often people are losing their jobs. They're being persecuted. They're being sacked. They're being vilified on social media. I was reading about um, uh, a Methodist theologian who has been absolutely taken apart because of his view on marriage and identity and and just asking questions, and and he's been sacked. It means our voice is often now judged, even without any kind of appropriate mechanism. So they're trying to stand up and protect and fight for this. It's an interesting organization. Go and have a look at it. It's called Christian Concern. There are many attacks on our spiritual lives, and we need to be aware of the reality of that. And I think the church is under massive threat. 
uh, and this is not a time to go into all the great details of it, but I, I believe the church is at a real watershed moment of making the right choice or wrong choice about things. Um, for those of you that are aware of some of what's going on in the Church of England, I'm going to finish with this. The, the Church of England bishops have recently published some thinking on the whole idea, uh, uh, the whole concept of marriage, identity, um, all those areas. And it's caused a massive challenge in the church, saying, well, do we think this is right? Do we not think it's right? I think the bishops have lost a lot of confidence of a lot of churches. It's interesting that a church like All Souls Langham Place, which is a massive Anglican church, on the basis of that, have chosen, have chosen to stop paying any parish share until there's a resolution on these issues. There's all sorts of questions about the church saying, what, what is truth? How do we hold to the Bible? How do we hold to the word of God? What do we believe about marriage? What do we believe about identity? What do we believe about what, who we're created by and what we're created for? And I think as church, we need to be asking Jesus, what do you think? Can you lead us? What was the challenge for the church in Pergamon? Where Jesus said, I don't want you to redefine your thinking. I don't want, to, I don't want you to renegotiate your understanding. I just want you to repent. And I think as church, in our own lives, I have to look at my own heart and say, Lord, would you show me where I need to repent? Where I've got things wrong, where I've become watered down, or where I've just failed to speak up against injustice instead of defending the weak, the widows, the orphans, the vulnerable, the broken. Would you help me renew my mind where I've lost my way, where I'm not as sharp as I used to be, where I have held love above truth? We need to hold truth and love and do it wisely and, and we need Jesus to help us do that well because often the church has got that wrong on both ways and we need to be a people who are willing to repent there's more I could say you'll be delighted to know I'm not going to I'm going to invite the bands come up and I'd love to pray for us as we draw to a close um, I guess it's a call to holiness that Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamon hold fast Resist the temptation to just give in to the pressures around you. Give, resist the temptation just to shut your mouth and not speak up against what you believe is wrong. And we don't believe that with our own understanding. We look at the word of God. It's got to be the Bible is our plumb line. The Bible is our truth. That's where we learn truth. And Jesus is everywhere in the Bible. And he is our truth. We need to be reading scripture saying, Jesus, reveal yourself to me, Lord. Help me understand what is the truth. Help me understand how to live a life in these complicated days. I know where you live, says Jesus. I know the challenges you face. But to he or she who holds firm, I will feed you. I'll provide for you. I will redeem you. Let's pray. Jesus, your words to the churches in Revelation aren't always easy. But you don't write simply to rebuke and correct you don't write sternly to just kind of rant like some people do on Twitter. You write to the churches a love letter, a longing for them to hold firm, a longing for them to find you, a longing for them to be encouraged to turn back to you, to know of your great love and mercy and strength and power. But Lord, it so often begins with us repenting, recognizing our own brokenness and our need of you. So Jesus, I pray that you would lead us and guide us, that you'd help us to hold firm in these uncertain days. And we take great comfort from the fact that you see our circumstances, you know the challenge of the days in which we live, and you love us, and you call us to come deeper with you. 
Search our hearts, O oh God, and where there's wrong thinking, where there's wrong ways, for the things that we've done and said that we shouldn't have, would you forgive us? For the times we've remained silent instead of speaking out, would you forgive us? Where we haven't, haven't held to the plumb line of your truth, would you forgive us? Where we've compromised or we've looked away to false idols, would you forgive us? And where the brokenness of others have caused us to step back or to make compromises or to hold uh, unforgiveness, would you forgive us? And as much as we've been forgiven, would you help us to forgive us, others? So that your kingdom may come forth more fully and that your church might be the glorious, wonderful bride that you intend it to be. Lord, I pray in these days of uncertainty and darkness, may your church emerge more radiant and beautiful than ever before so the world would see 